Why don't you take your Bibles and turn them with me to uh, the tiny little epistle of 1 John. It's the late first century, and the churches in Asia Minor have just experienced a very painful schism. There are people in these churches, false teachers, that began to develop beliefs about Jesus, beliefs about salvation, uh, beliefs about what it means to know God and have eternal life uh, that were very different from what John and his fellow apostles were teaching. And as a result of this schism, there was a significant exodus, a, a mass departure from these churches. And so these false teachers and their followers separated themselves from these congregations, but they were still trying to deceive the churches and gain followers even after their departure. And these recent controversies have left the remaining members of these churches alarmed and disturbed and confused, surely somewhat shaken, a little uncertain about where things stand, about where they stand in the aftermath of what must have been a very intense emotional and agonizing experience. And so now John wants to strengthen and encourage these wounded believers. He says in uh, chapter 5, verse 13 of this book, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John wants to help these believers to know, to know that despite, despite everything that's happened, they're still on the right path. They are genuinely saved. They really do have eternal life. John provides help by painting very stark contrasts between believers and unbelievers. And the sense of urgency regarding what John is writing about has not diminished since the first century. It's just as important in the 21st century because every single person in this room is either a believer or an unbeliever. And I can think of few things more urgent for you than to know where you stand. To know which group you are in. So turn to 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 18, and please stand with me in honor of the reading of the words of our God. Apostle John writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, So now many antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. and You all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. 
But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, would you take this weak, tired, flawed, sinful preacher and give him help to communicate your truth? Would you take these weak, tired, flawed, sinful hearers and help them to hear and to know and to understand what your word might say? Father, help us to believe. Father, I pray for those in this room who do trust and believe in you, that have received salvation through Christ. Father, I pray that this word would strengthen and encourage them and give them that additional assurance, that additional confidence, that additional hope in you. Father, I pray for those in this room who are unbelievers, maybe some who are unbelievers but don't even know it. That as we are going through the Word of God, as John is helping us to see the marks of genuine believers, that those here who are unbelievers might might hear these things and and, and have an epiphany moment and realize that they've never been believers and also realize that today is the day of salvation. Father, help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I remember as a child, there were few things that creeped me out as much as Bible teachers talking about end times prophecy and the identity of the Antichrist. That there was just there's something about the idea of a human embodiment of evil that just unsettled me and made me nervous. And yet there was also something very fascinating about the topic. It was like trying to solve a mystery, trying to put the the puzzle pieces together. Who might this person be? Uh, when, will they, when will this person come? If you, if you shave their head back, would you see a little 666 tattoo there on their upper forehead? That, that kind of fascination has gone on for a long time. In fact, <clears throat> pin the tail on the Antichrist has been a favorite sport of Christians since the earliest days of the church. In the second century, Irenaeus taught that Antichrist would be a Jewish person energized by the devil who would appear in a rebuilt uh, Jewish temple in connection with widespread apostasy. Or a fast forward to the Protestant Reformation. Uh, they, they identified Antichrist with the Catholic papacy. That really shocks you, doesn't it, that they would do that? In fact, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith pretty much fingers the Pope himself as Antichrist. Or fast forward further, in the 1939 booklet, The Time of Jacob's Trouble, the the writer attempts to show how the revived Germany under Hitler's Nazi regime was uh, was the supposed last day's ten-nation alliance predicted in Revelation 13. It goes on uh, further by saying that Mussolini was the false prophet in partnership with the German beast. I remember as a child, prophecy pundits declaring King Juan Carlos of Spain to be the Antichrist. That one was a little out of left field for me. Uh, Others have pointed the finger to virtually every leader of the Soviet Union to be the one. Uh, Many suspect someone in the European European Union. Other suspects have been Henry Kissinger, Ronald Reagan, Mikhail Gorbachev, Saddam Hussein, 
Osama bin Laden, President George W. Bush, and former British Prime Minister Tony Blair, among others. And while on the one hand the Scriptures point to a final Antichrist figure who will emerge before the end of history in opposition to God and His people, on the other hand, the Apostle John in this first epistle, writes with a great sense of urgency regarding not a future foe that is difficult, if not impossible, to identify, but instead John wants us to be aware of and on guard against a clear and present threat that actually can be identified. And he labels these threats as antichrists, plural. That's bad enough that there's one antichrist that will come. But John's telling us that there are lots of antichrists, and what's more, they're already here. But John's purpose in in identifying these antichrists is not to creep you out. It's actually to give you confidence and assurance. Again, John says, I write these things to you, believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And John's goal is to paint such a stark contrast between antichrists and true believers that John's Christian readers in first century Asia Minor and the Christian readers here in this room this morning will have no question about where they stand. But they will instead grow in their confidence regarding their possession of eternal life. And John gives us three very specific contrasts between believers and unbelievers, between Christians and Antichrist. It really breaks down in in a nice little outline here. The, the first thing that we'll notice, I'm kind of giving you a heads up where we're going here. Uh, the first thing that we notice is that uh, antichrists depart from the church, Christians remain in the church. That's in verses 18 and 19. And then in verses 20 through 23, we see that antichrists depart from the truth about Jesus, Christians embrace the truth about Jesus. And then finally, we'll, we'll see how Antichrists depart from the gospel and Christians abide in the gospel, verses 24 through 25. So let's look at this, uh, this first contrast that we are given. Antichrists depart from the church and Christians remain in the church. Look at verse 18. John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, John starts this section uh, with a word that may be surprising to some. Uh, John says that it is the last hour. That's interesting, especially considering that first John was written in the first century. Uh, occasionally I'll, I'll get a, a questions along the lines of, oh, do, do you think we're in the, in the last days? Are, are these the end times? My answer is yes. Not only are we in the last days, John says we're in the last hour, and it's a long hour. We've been there for like 1,900 years. Now, for, from, from God's perspective, what this means is God, God keeps time a little bit differently than you and I. And from God's perspective, redemptive history is almost complete. 
Jesus' long-awaited first advent has come. That was, as John is writing this book, that was the last great moment that had happened in God's redemptive plan. Jesus had died and risen again and ascended to heaven. And there is one more major event yet to happen on God's redemptive calendar. That is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, his second advent. And how do we know it's the last hour? Uh, John tells us. He says, children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore, we know that it's the last hour. John cites the proliferation of Antichrists as proof that we're in the last hour. Now, if we are still in that last hour, if we're deeper into that last hour than the the, the first century church was, it must surely mean that Antichrists continue to abound, and we must be on guard more than ever. And notice what else John says about these antichrists uh, that the churches in Asia Minor had to deal with. Look at verse 19. They went out from us, but they were, they were not of us. Now, this is shocking. Typically, when we think of antichrist, what do we think of? We think of Nikolai Carpathia, if you read the Left Behind series. We, we think of evil forces outside the church coming against us. We think of something so obviously wicked and evil and different uh, than us that it's evident from the start that they aren't one of the good guys. But notice what, notice what John says. Where, are, where were these antichrists in the beginning? Verse 18, they went out. From where? From the pits of hell? From some super secret bad guy hideout where all the antichrists are scheming and plotting and stroking their beards? No, they went out from us. These antichrists were members of the church. Antichrists are not necessarily an external threat to the church. Many times, antichrists are actually within the church. They've infiltrated the body. They looked like everyone else. They talked about knowing God. They talked about Christ They talked about salvation. They preached. But John also teaches us here that antichrists, sooner or later, are exposed. And they are exposed through breaking fellowship with the church. Again, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. Now, what are we to make of this statement? What do we think about these people who have abandoned the church? And I probably should make this clear, and really the context of this passage makes it clear, that these people, in abandoning the church, aren't simply deciding that they'd rather sleep in on Sunday mornings. It's not simply that they found another church where they like the music better, and so they're, you know, they're going to, to Second Baptist across the street. No, these people, in abandoning the church, are abandoning everything essential about the Christian faith. They are abandoning the apostles' teaching. They are abandoning the moral expectations for Christian living. They are abandoning core doctrines of the faith and are going their own way. They are in a state of apostasy. So what are we to think about this? Could it be that these people were genuine Christians who lost their salvation? Absolutely not. For a whole host 
of reasons. Not the least being that if John is saying that these people lost their salvation, think about this, he would be totally undermining his whole purpose for this letter, which is to give believers assurance of salvation. But if you can lose your salvation, if that's a possibility, you can kiss your hope for any assurance goodbye. Is John perhaps saying that these people were genuine Christians and they still are genuine Christians even though they've rejected everything essential about Christianity and are walking in sinful rebellion? Well, if that's true, John would be undermining his teaching on the new birth. Uh, One of John's arguments in this book, and we'll see more of this uh, in the next chapter, is that Christians really have been changed. They really have been transformed. They really are different. The clearest way to know what to think of these people is just to take a closer look at what John himself says. Again, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. John is saying, yes, they were at one time among us. They were members of the church, but they, they were not really of us. They weren't really Christians. They weren't really saved. They may have fooled folks for a while, but no more. They didn't lose their salvation They were never saved to begin with. I wonder how many many people are sitting in churches this morning who are in that condition. I wonder if there's anyone here in that condition. It is possible for a person to, to some degree, outwardly appear to be a believer, to, to be a member of the church, to even be involved in ministry. Uh, to be in a leadership role in ministry, to, to seem to do all sorts of wonderful things for God, and yet in the end, prove to be a false professor. Now, in the New Testament, I can think of no better example of this than Judas. Judas was a member of Jesus' inner circle. Judas did ministry side by side with the disciples. Judas cast out demons. Judas did signs and wonders. Judas must have had the appearance of being good and maybe even the appearance of being trustworthy because he is trusted with the money back. He's the treasurer for the ministry. Judas preached the gospel, and yet Judas was not saved. And how do we know in the end that he was not saved? Because eventually, he departed. He abandoned the disciples. He abandoned Christ. Why? Because he loved money. You see, sooner or later, the false believer is exposed because you cannot serve two masters. Jesus says you will love the one and despise the other. You can can try to fake it and serve two masters, but you can only keep spinning all those plates that you can only keep that charade up for so long, and eventually your life reveals which master is most important to you. If you're here this morning and you are projecting some sort of front, giving the appearance of a believer, and you're really not, sooner or later that will be made evident. John says they went out from us, but they were not of us. And then John's next statement is very helpful He says, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. John's really saying two things at once. He's saying that the departure of the false teachers proved they were false. But he's also saying that if they were genuine believers, 
they would have continued with them. Genuine believers continue on. Genuine believers persevere. Genuine believers are not perfect. Genuine believers struggle with sin. But the overall trajectory of the genuine believer is one that keeps moving towards God and His truth. And notice how John is encouraging these believers. These believers are doing, uh, these believers are doing what the Antichrist are not doing. They are continuing on. They are persevering. The, the fact that they didn't follow the Antichrist out of the church is evidence that they have God and eternal life. Christians, take heart this morning. I know you're not perfect. Believe me, I know. And you know I'm not. I know that sometimes you stumble and fall. Uh, there may be Christians in this room right now racked with regret over a sin committed just this weekend. And you're kicking yourself and you're wondering, am I ever going to get it together? You hear this talk from me about persevering and you're discouraged and you're wondering how you can make it even another day as a Christian, let alone 20 more years as a Christian. Take it from the Apostle John that you will continue, you will persevere. And how will you do that? The Apostle Paul tells you, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say he who began a good work in you might bring it to completion, will probably bring it to completion, will hopefully bring it to completion if you're lucky, we'll see, fingers crossed. No, it's a done deal. If God has begun to work in you, the work will be completed. You say, well, well well, don't I have responsibility in and of myself to persevere? Yes. Uh, Paul, as a matter of fact, says in the very next chapter in Philippians 2, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So yes, you work, you strive, you keep pushing forward in the faith. That's your responsibility. But right after Paul tells you to work, he says in the very next verse, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work and you strive, but the work that makes the decisive difference in your sanctification is God's work in you. And praise God for that. Because if my ultimate sanctification were up to the strength of Deemer Webb, Deemer Webb would be a goner. Guaranteed. But because it is God who works in me, I can be confident that he will finish what he started. And you can have that confidence as well. Antichrists depart from the church. Christians remain. Second one. Antichrists depart from the truth about Jesus. Christians embrace the truth about Jesus. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. False believers do not fully receive Jesus for all that he is. They may have Jesus or Christ in their theology, but their Jesus is a distorted Jesus. Their Christ is a warped version of Christ. So let's consider what specifically these false teachers are denying. 
John says that these people who left the church are denying that Jesus is the Christ. Now, let's remember, and Steve explained this uh, earlier in the sermon series, these, these false teachers promoted a very early form of Gnosticism that taught that the material world, matter, the earth, our flesh and blood bodies were evil, and, and that the only things that, uh, only things that were immaterial in spirit could be actually good. And for that reason, they made a distinction between the Christ and Jesus of Nazareth. Christ was divine. Jesus was a mere man. And, and, and they, would say, they would say that for a brief time, the Christ came upon Jesus and influenced him and took him over. And, and that's why Jesus could do supernatural things and he had all this, this wisdom but the Christ left Jesus before his crucifixion. So what you have dying on the cross is a regular man, not the Christ. That, that's the heresy known as, as docetism. The Gnostics would have had some sort of Christ in their theology, but they would have vehemently denied that Jesus was the Christ. Turn over to chapter 4. We're still in 1 John. Chapter 4. John gives us more details about the Gnostics' theology. And he says in verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So the Gnostics refuse to believe in the incarnation that Christ, who is God, has come in the flesh. Now the incarnation of Christ... That is, Christ coming to earth and becoming a human being is at the centerpiece of Christian theology in general and in John's writings in particular. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, John writes that the Word was God and the Word became flesh, became human, and dwelt among us. But of course, the idea of Christ coming in the flesh would have been scandalous to the Gnostics. And so they denied this. And John's saying that that denial exposes them as antichrist. Now, in our 21st century pluralistic culture, John might seem mean. It surely must seem strange and over the top and politically incorrect for John to make a big deal about this. Who cares about the details about what you believe about Christ? Who cares what you believe about Jesus? Why should we argue and fight over the details. Why make this into such a big thing? The reason why it's a big thing is because Jesus makes it a big thing. Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Unless you believe that I'm the one that I claim to be, you will die in your sins. I don't think you could make it a bigger deal than that. The stakes can't be any higher than that. What you believe about Jesus is a matter of eternal life or death. So Jesus is the one who makes this a big deal. So take it up with him if you don't like it. Now, if we keep reading, we begin to see why this is a big deal. Uh, verse 22, uh, we're back in First John now. Verse 22 of chapter 2, John says... No one who denies the Son has the Father. So if you deny who the Son really is, you don't have God. 
you don't have God. And that's very relevant today because you have plenty of people who claim to have God, but they deny the truth about Jesus, even while trying to maybe have some version of Jesus in their worldview. So, for example, you have Muslims. They have a Jesus, and in their construct, he's a prophet. They acknowledge him uh, as, as, as one who did miracles. They even regard him as sinless. But guess what? They don't see him as God in the flesh. They deny that. And so, according to John here, they don't have God. They think they have God. They don't. You have our Jehovah's Witness friends. They have a Jesus. They even acknowledge that he died on the cross. They, they, they would say a stake, whatever. They even call him a God. A God. They do not regard him as the God, capital G. Therefore, they denied the Son. And they don't have God. You have millions of people all over the country, maybe even people in this room, who would claim to have some sort of connection with God, some sort of relationship with God, and yet they reject Jesus as Lord of their life. They reject the kingship of Jesus. Indeed, that is what it literally means to deny that Jesus is the Christ. What does Christ mean? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. Christos. It means anointed one. In the Hebrew, the word is is Mashiach, which means Messiah. And we think Messiah... We think that word Messiah today, when we think of it, we tend to simply think of some sort of spiritual savior. But that word Messiah to the ancient Jew is loaded with all kinds of meaning. In in the Old Testament, the kings of Israel were called Mashiach. Did you know that? David, Solomon, these men were regarded as Mashiach, as Messiah, God's special anointed representative on earth. And in the Jewish world, there was an expectation of a final Messiah, a descendant of King David, who would come and would rule and reign over the whole world, and every knee would bow to this king. And to receive the reign of Messiah would bring blessing. To resist the reign of Messiah would bring destruction. We see that in Psalm 2, which was read earlier in the service. And it turns out that God himself came into the world as a human. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born of the Virgin Mary, of the line of David, and he was called Jesus. And in his first advent, Jesus came to conquer sin, Satan, and death through the cross. And Jesus has promised to come again. And in his second advent, he will come to conquer the world. And the question that is before everyone is, do you receive the kingship of Jesus? Do you receive Jesus as the Christ? That's the most important question for you this morning. Uh, Turn over to, to Matthew 16. Matthew 16. Lots of people say lots of things about Jesus. Lots of people say lots of nice things about Jesus. Give Jesus some lip service. Give Jesus a little love. Yeah, he was was, was a good guy. 
He did some good stuff. He was helpful. A lot of people say a lot of things about Jesus, but it doesn't matter what other people say. It doesn't matter what Muslims say or the Jehovah's Witnesses say or Mormons say or Hindus say or even what I say. Look at Matthew 16, starting at verse 13, where Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the King the Son of the living God. Jesus, through the Scriptures this morning, is turning to you and is asking you, who do you say that I am? The Gnostics, these uh, false teachers in the churches of Asia Minor, the Gnostics denied Jesus was the Christ. They rejected His incarnation. They rejected His kingship. They aren't walking as Jesus walked. They aren't listening to His words. They aren't obeying His commands. They're they're claiming to know God, but they're not walking as Jesus walked. We saw that in earlier sections in 1 John. People rejected the kingship of Christ then, and they still do today. Psalm chapter 2, which was read earlier this morning, captures the attitude that the world at large has towards the authority of Jesus. Psalm chapter 2, right in the beginning, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. There's that word again. His Christ, His Messiah, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the attitude of every single sinner apart from God softening their hearts. People in their hearts hate and reject God's king. They see the rules and commands of God's anointed as bonds that they need to burst apart, as shackles that they need to throw off. The Gnostics, the last thing they were interested in was following the commands of Jesus. They thought they could still be spiritual while still rebelling against Him. But the Apostle John says, not so. Not so. If you deny that Jesus is the Christ, is the incarnate King of heaven and earth, then you have also denied the Father. You see, the Son, hear me now, the Son and the Father are a package deal. To have one is to have the other. To deny one is to deny the other. Now, now why? Why, when you deny the Son, does that automatically mean you don't have the Father? That you don't have God? Here's why. Because Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Because Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. If you're looking at me, you're looking at God. And Jesus came and revealed exactly what the Father is like, which means if you hate what you see, guess who you're hating? You're hating God. And from the first century Gnostics all the way to 21st century Buddhists, 
and atheists, and Hindus, Mormons, Jehovah Witnesses, Muslims, nominal mainline Christians. From the first century till now, we've had version after version after version after version after version of Jesus invented and reinvented because people can't stomach the real thing. But no matter how clever or sophisticated the invention, it does not change the fact that all who distort the person of Christ hate God and do not have God, which means they do not have eternal life. Again, John's words, not mine. Don't shoot the messenger. You cannot reject God's appointed Mashiach, appointed king, still have God. No one who denies the Son has the Father. But right after that, John says, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Genuine believers receive and embrace and cherish the truth about who Jesus is. In his gospel, John writes in chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. True Christians believe and receive Jesus. And to believe and receive Jesus means to really believe and really receive all that he is. He is King, Savior, God, substituting sacrifice for sins. He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. He is the Christ in every sense of what that word means. The Apostle John gives the churches of Asia, Asia Minor assurance by contrasting them with the Antichrists. And it should give you assurance. If you embrace the truth about Jesus, if you receive what the Bible says about Him, it is evidence that you are a child of God, that you belong to Him, that you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Look down at verse 27. I write these things to you. It's verses 26 and 27. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything, abide in Him. These false teachers were trying to deceive the believers and entangle them in lies about Jesus Christ. But notice what John says protects them from being deceived. He says, but you have the anointing that you receive from Him uh, that, that anointing abides in you. That's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. It's reminiscent of what Jesus tells the disciples on the eve of His crucifixion. Remember what He told them about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Gospel of John chapter 14, verse 26? Jesus says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Or a couple chapters later, in in chapter 16, verse 13, uh, Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. It's the Holy Spirit that enlightens man to the truth about who Jesus is. Going back to Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And how does Jesus respond? Does Jesus pat Peter on the back? And congratulate Peter for being so clever and so smart for figuring this out all by himself. 
Did you say, man, Peter, I'm so impressed and blown away by your insight. You're so much sharper than those morons, the Pharisees. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus instead turns to Peter and says, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. But my Father who is in heaven, God through the Spirit revealed the truth to Peter. And, And that's how every single Christian in this room came to fully recognize and believe and receive and embrace the truth about Jesus. Nobody in this room can congratulate themselves for coming to the right conclusion about Jesus. I hope you're not doing that this morning. I hope you're thanking God for revealing this to you. You have received the truth about Jesus because of the anointing of the Holy Spirit, which has given you insights. Now, this truth is meant to give us great assurance. If you believe and receive Jesus for all that he is, if you've come to that point, that means you have the anointing. The Spirit indwells you. John says in verse 27, the anointing that you received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now John here is clearly not rejecting the need for churches to have human teachers. Indeed, John himself is trying to teach them. Instead, what John means is, is that you don't need these Gnostics, these false teachers who are they're coming along and saying, I have secret knowledge about the Christ. I have new revelation from God. And, and you'll never know what you must know unless you listen to me. And John's saying, no. You don't need to listen. To, you don't need these people to tell you anything about the Christ. You already know everything you need to know about the Christ. You have the anointing. The Spirit is revealing the truth to you about Christ. John says, his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie. And how ultimately does the Holy Spirit teach believers the truth? He doesn't do it through secret esoteric knowledge. He doesn't do it through mystical experiences, dreams, visions. He doesn't do it through audible voices in our head. Instead, he does it through his word. Which leads me to my final point. Antichrists depart from the gospel. Christians abide in the gospel. John says... In verse 24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Now, John is implicitly saying that the Antichrist didn't do that. They didn't let what they heard from the beginning abide or remain in them. They departed from that and went their own way. But that's not the case with real believers. John encourages the true believers to stay on the path they've been on. Uh, The the false teachers are like exit ramps on the side of the highway, beckoning them to leave the road and go a different way. But the Apostle John is assuring these believers that they've been on the right road all along. Don't be disturbed by all the the, the controversies that have been going on in these churches. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. You're on the right track. Keep going. Keep going. You don't need a new word. You don't need fresh revelation. Instead, remain in what you have heard from the beginning. And what did they hear from the beginning? The gospel. The original message of the apostles. And what is that message? It's not complicated. It's not secret. It's not new. It's that that old, old story that we are sinners that deserve the wrath of a holy God. And yet God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. Jesus Christ, who is 100% God, but also became 100% man. This Jesus, this descendant of King David, lived the perfect life we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved. 
he hung on the cross, and as he hung on the cross, our sin was placed on him, and God punished our sins in him, and the same Jesus conquered the grave and rose again. And so all who place their trust in Jesus, the God-man, all who repent and bend the knee to Jesus as king, will find that his payment for sins has been transferred to their accounts, and they're now considered not guilty. They owe God nothing anymore because Jesus has paid it all. Their faith has united them to Jesus. So not only does his death count as the believer's death, but also Jesus' resurrection is a guarantee that all believers will one day be raised from the dead like Jesus and will spend eternity in heaven in fellowship with God. That's it. That's the message. It's not complicated. You don't need anything else but that message. John encourages the, the churches of Asia Minor to let that word abide in them. These false teachers have nothing for you. Everything you need to know is in the word that God has already revealed to you. John says, verse 24, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Unlike the the Antichrist who departed from God's word, genuine Christians remain faithful to God's word, and that word word lives in us. It, It abides in our hearts. And John gives these believers the ultimate assurance. If that word is abiding in you, which it is, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And what is the result of abiding in the Son and abiding in the Father? John tells you, verse 25, this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Eternal life. What a wonderful, amazing promise. Friends, you can really know that you have eternal life. You don't have to guess about it. Are you continuing on in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ? True Christians don't abandon the body. They remain in the body. Are you embracing the whole truth about Jesus? Are you embracing Him as Savior, Lord, Lamb of God, King, 100% man, 100% God? True Christians don't abandon the truth about Jesus. And what about the gospel? Are you continuing to place your full trust in that old, old story? Do you continue to celebrate what Jesus did on that old rugged cross? Do you revel in the fact that Jesus paid it all for you and that he died for you and that he rose for you and you are trusting in that and in that alone? Psalm 2 talks about the kingship of God's Son and the wrath that comes from rejecting him. But it also tells us that the way to escape that wrath is to take refuge in that same king. Psalm 2 offers a word of warning, but also offers a word of hope as the psalmist ends that psalm by saying, blessed are those who take refuge in him. Genuine Christians cling to the gospel and bank all their hopes on the gospel. It's not that you just embrace the gospel one time when you were saved and then you forget about it in favor of, of, of deeper truths. Instead, true believers let what they heard in the beginning abide in them. If that is you, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this wonderful, glorious message from the Apostle John. Thank you that that you care about the fact about whether or not believers have assurance that believers can have confidence in what you've done for us. Thank you, Father, that he 
who has begun a good work in us will complete it. God, I pray for believers in this room who are struggling, who are discouraged, who are downcast because they're so focused on their failures, so focused on all the things that they have done wrong. Oh, Father, would you lift up their head this morning, get their eyes off of themselves, and turn their eyes to Jesus. Yes, it is true that genuine believers follow after Christ and genuine believers strive for obedience. But we see over and over again in the Scriptures that genuine believers sometimes stumble and sometimes fall. It's why John says in the first chapter, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And thank you, Father, for that next wonderful truth that John gives us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, give believers confidence in what you have done for them. Let them grow in that. Father, I pray for those this morning who may be here who have not received Jesus, not received him for real. Maybe they've given lip service to Jesus. Maybe they would profess to be a believer, and yet in their heart of hearts, that is not true. They're not really trusting in the gospel. They're not really receiving Jesus as the Christ, as the King, and their lives demonstrate that. There is no brokenness over sin and no desire to repent. Oh, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do what he did for Peter when he was talking with Jesus and when he confessed the truth about Jesus. I pray that the Holy Spirit would would do what he has done for every single person in this room that believes in Jesus. I pray that you would do that same thing to any unbelievers in this room, that their eyes may be open and that they may see Jesus for who he really is and not hate him, but embrace him. Thank you, Father, for your love, kindness, and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.